Slate's Movie Critic, and we are here with the second episode of Flashback, Slate's new podcast about older films and uh, discoveries from film history. Joining me in the Slate studio is Kay Austin Collins of Vanity Fair. Hey, Kim. Hi. Hi. Good to have you back. (laughs) Good to see you again. And for our second show, we talked about Gaslight last time, which our introductory episode was my choice. But then we passed the baton over to you. And uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that you came up with this idea during the course of our recording last time. Is that right? That it just popped into your mind as we were talking? I did because uh, for a while, it's changed to Beyonce now, but for a while, the background of my phone was of Barbara Loden, a screenshot from this movie. Um, and I just looked at my phone. I got a text or something and looked at my phone and said, we should do this movie, actually. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was a good, good choice. It was a good um, act of chance because this, I think, fits really well with what I'm hoping to do with this podcast, which is talk about old movies, but not just randomly dig them up from the archive, but hopefully find movies that that speak in some way to something that's going on in the culture right now. And this movie has such a strange modernity to it, which we will get into. So the film we're discussing this time is Wanda, a 1970 indie film that was written and directed by and starring uh, Barbara Loden and was the only film, full-length feature film, she ever made, um, has achieved something of a cult status as a film that was not lost exactly, but that was way under the radar for a very long time, although it was quite recognized when it came out. It hardly had any distribution. It was shown mainly at festivals. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 1970, and it won Best Foreign Film there that year. Uh, But then it spent a long time, essentially four or five decades, really unnoticed and unavailable to film scholars. It was restored by the UCLA Film Archive, I believe, about a decade ago, and now has just been released on Criterion as a a disc and Blu-ray. It's also available on the exciting new Criterion streaming channel. In fact, my first time exploring this channel, which just launched last week, was to watch Wanda and all the great related content they have to Wanda, which we'll talk about. Um, But since this movie was your choice, do you want to talk a little bit about Barbara Loden, who she was, how this movie came to be? Sure. Um, So I think an important thing to know about this movie and her inspiration for it was that she found... Um, an article, a newspaper clipping about a woman who I believe was involved in a bank robbery. But the the thing that was really striking to her was that the woman thanked the judge for the jail time that she was assigned. I think what struck her was that, like her, this woman came from a poor Southern background. I think the woman was around the same age. I think from there, she sort of took this premise. And in addition to exploring that, I think combined it with her own personal history I think she's trying to invoke also the history of her mother and just the history of women like her, women who were drifters, women who were sort of outside of the, in the 70s, sort of the the mainline feminist line about empowerment, about sort of, you know, this is a woman who drifts from man to man. This is a woman who does not want to take care of her kids. This is a woman whose end goal is not necessarily digging herself out of poverty, but rather just someone who is getting by, but it's also not about work. It's just a curious movie in that way. It's striking because it becomes sort of a bank robbery thriller, but really you're just looking at this examination of this woman. Barbara Loden plays her. Her name is Wanda, title character. And part of the reason I wanted to choose this movie was because, like many other people, I had heard about this movie for so long. And the restoration happened in 2010, but more recently, there, you know, in, I think with an eye toward the Criterion release, there were screenings 
across the country and a bunch of us were seeing it for the first time or seeing a good version. I do know that there was a copy on YouTube for a long time, but it, it, you know, it's a movie that was shot in 16 millimeter. And when you add sort of the standard definition quality of a lot of things that are ripped onto YouTube, I think you are kind of missing what's really beautiful, but beautifully bleak about the movie. So I never watched it there, even though I knew I could. But now that I'm seeing it, I just I would love to just sit and talk with you about the way that Barbara Loden mapped herself onto this character, the movie itself and how beautiful and bleak, but also just profoundly moving it is. I, I You know, this is only my second time seeing it, but I just for a movie that I'd have been hearing about for so long, for it to live up to my expectations, to surpass my expectations, to move me more than I thought it would, to give me more to think about, about independent film and the the people that we make movies about and why don't know of more movies about people like wanda particularly in america (laughs) we overuse the term relatable and i have really nothing in common with this character and and little in common with barbara loden but i really feel something when i watch this film um the sense of being adrift is something that i just think this movie nails yeah well it's one of those movies where form and content are and author are kind of perfectly married, yes. you know, and yes. uh, and so that the movie itself drifts in the way that she drifts. And as the viewer, you have to give yourself up to that drifting. There, it's, a, it's a movie that you have to view with a certain passivity, the same way that the character is passive, not weak, you know, right. and not dumb, but passive in a way that says everything about, you know, about where feminism was at that moment, you know, the moment before consciousness raising, really. I mean, Loden has said that she was not at all trying to enact some sort of feminist agenda in making this movie. And it's made in 1970, which is a very interesting pivot year, right? Right. It's not the 70s yet quite. It looks like the 60s when you look at this movie, the cars, the clothes, you know, a lot of the kind of social habits seem like they have to do with the prior decade. But the aesthetic of the movie is so far into the future. You know, it's as if Cassavetes has already happened. And I don't think he was even a reference for her, at least not one that she mentioned. Um, but, But I think that this movie has everything to do with that. Before we get into the movie itself, I wanted to talk a little bit about how different it was than I expected, which (laughs) I think is interesting because of the internalized sexism that I was carrying, knowing Barbara Loden mainly as what she biographically was at the time, which was the wife of Elia Kazan, right? right? Um, Director of On the Waterfront, et cetera. Splendor in the Grass, which she was in. Which she was in, right. And that she was, uh, you know, as the newspapers called her, the blonde bombshell who had played Marilyn Monroe on Broadway in Arthur Miller's play After the Fall, which she won a Tony Award for Best Actress for, that she was someone who was respected as an actress, certainly, but was also, you know, a gorgeous, kind of fragile blonde along the Maryland lines, you know, who was treated by the press very much in that way, mm. who whatever her marriage with Ely Kazan was about, it lasted quite a long time and seems like it was a mixture of a genuine love relationship with some amount of, you know, sort of paternalistic um, marriage values because he's right. 23 years older than her and a famous artist already when they marry, right? But maybe because of all that and because of my internalized sexism or something, when I started hearing about Wanda, which was probably about 10 years ago when that restoration started, I thought it would be sort of like an Ilya Kazan film. I thought that it would be a social problem film. I Mm. imagined that it would be really good, but that it would be sort of very talky and that it would be about social issues and about kind of female empowerment or female, you know, oppression or something in some much more stated way. I had just no idea that it would be this wild, independent ride that it is that really looks toward the future of movies and not at all back at the past of of the more polished kind of studio films that he made. And apparently yeah. something actually that she said shortly after arriving in Hollywood 
and and starting to work in film was that she didn't like most movies because she thought they were too polished and everyone in them was too perfect and she couldn't relate. And this movie is so clearly attempting to counteract that. But, you know, one of the things that I really agree with that you said is, you know, when you think about it as a 70s American independent film, you know, I'd also heard that it was a, you know, a bank robbery movie. There's an idea of that kind of movie that I have in mind. And then I sit down and watch this movie and it opens with a slow pan across some coal <laughs> and, and a, you know, a court appointment in which she says she doesn't want to take care of her kids, just relinquishes them to her husband. And pretty soon I'm like, OK, this is not the movie that I thought it was going to be. And I think to your point, and, you know, there's a great essay on this by Amy Taubin that goes with the Criterion release. My understanding is that part of the reason that it didn't get a little bit more play, at least in the press, or wasn't better appreciated in its moment was because it it stood out from what were about to be the, the the mainstream feminist values of the time. That it wasn't necessarily the kind of movie that people thought was a good representation of women. Right. In I the mean, 70s. Wanda is not a badass, right? right. <laughs> but but it's so it's so interesting to watch it today, and you know, hearing that, understanding why that would be sort of vexing for them. But I think that she is so much more complicated than the anti-feminist, <laughs> than the anti-feminist sort of archetype that I was sort of expecting. Um, I think that she, and we're going to get into this, but I think that she is funnier. I think that she is less despairing, even as she's despairing, than whatever the reputation would be. There are just ways that this movie isn't falling into all the sort of neat grooves that would sort of come to define movies about poverty and, and poor people and women and at just every other kind of marginal person. We like have, have somehow metastasized all of those things into these really, frankly, increasingly boring archetypes, and this movie just subverts them before yeah. we even have them. It's, it's In crazy. part because Wanda is not an archetype, right? right? She doesn't represent any kind of woman. I mean, you could make statements about the conditions of her life that has, have led her to the place that she is, but right. you really don't know the things in the past that caused her to get to this place. They're, they're never laid out either. In fact, we should start with that. At the beginning of the movie, we're really after the disaster already, after the fall, right? I mean, something bad has already happened. And when we first meet her, I believe the first time we see her, she's sleeping on the couch of her sister's place. And right. we, we put together quickly that that's because she's left her husband and children and is kind of couch surfing. Absolutely. And and I think an important thing that happens in this scene, that I don't, I, I don't even know why it's important. It just is, oh, it stands out to me is... She's laying on the couch and her sister offers her husband some coffee and the husband sort of wordlessly leaves with sort of an attitude. And Wanda says, it's because I'm here. Uh, and that's the scene. Uh, I mean, no, another part of the scene is also that there's a baby crying pretty abrasively. The way that the sound is designed, you sort of know before you get to the court, you sort of understand what the attitude toward children is going to be, I think. Yeah, because there's a sense of entrapment for the yeah. viewer in that scene. Like, is the whole movie going to be listening to this kid scream? This is really grating. Particularly if you like at the second time I watched it, I watched it you know, on my computer. I had headphones in and, and man, that baby is wailing. Just whatever, again, like an immediate rejection of the idea of motherhood as a thing that she might want to cling to. Um, but also just she's about to be late to her own court appointment uh, with her husband where they're going to, I guess, divvy out the question of custody. And speaking of her passivity and not, I think that's a fascinating scene of of just the judge saying, you know, are you, are you sure that you don't want to take care of these kids? And, and she's just like, he can have them. They're better off with him. They're better off with him. That, right. That's the, that's the line. Man, I think that's the first scene of the film that I ever saw. And immediately there's something about her performance. It's not classically big. It's not melodramatic. 
but it's also it's not downtrodden in the way that I recognize downtrodden impoverished performances to be. There's just this other category of person that she just seems to be in terms of just the kind of person that we make when we make movies about people like Wanda. Right. Like it's not a kitchen sink realism kind of movie, right? It's not people screaming in kitchens about their domestic entrapment. Right. Or really even screaming um, or emoting in that way. You know, I I, I don't know. This is your first time seeing it. Mm -hmm. So how did you feel in the beginning, in the opening? Well, you know, I went through for one thing. I've got my notes that I brought in. I just kept going through. It's impossible not to do this when you're watching a movie, sort of unclassifiable and genre labelable movie like this one, not to try to compare it to others, which is not to say that they were influences on it or that, you know, it ultimately is trying to do the same thing as those movies. But when she's first walking across those coal fields at the beginning, which is quite a long shot when she's going from her sister's house to to the court, um, I thought of Red Desert, the Antonioni movie, which would have been six years old at that time, you know, and uh, I imagine that she was enough steeped in the atmosphere of art films, you know, as somebody who was sort of moving at that point in elite Hollywood circles, that she would have been aware of of Antonioni. But something about the use of color in that scene and movies quite brightly colored and yet it's extremely bleak, right? It's not using gritty Christopher Nolan colors to to get across the bleakness. But the bleakness of the landscape she's traversing just says so much, even though it's not quite clear what it's saying about the the post-industrial kind of grim rust belt atmosphere that she lives in. Yeah, I I really love that shot. At first, she's just like a white speck and so much coal, and then you just sort of zoom in a bit, but just sort of... Lots of zooms in this movie, by the way. Very 70s. Yes, very 70s. Um, But you just watch her traverse this landscape, and there's this silence to it. And it's, it's weird. It's sort of ambiguous for me because it is just this small white dot amidst so much kind of blackness and coal. And it's lonely in a way, but it doesn't immediately communicate something so simple as just despair to me. You know, she's just, she's making her way to court. She's still going to court and she's still taking her time to get there and she's about to bump some money from someone and and all these things. But in terms of establishing her as a drifter, as someone who is using her own means to get where she has to go, it's it's really not so simple as, as her being someone that, you know, circumstances perform upon. She is, she is also an actor, Right. She's active in a way that I think the movie is very careful to establish and to trouble, but she's just not completely passive. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. She's, you know, passive and active at the same time. Like this movie obviously comes from the sensibility of someone with an incredible amount of independence and authority. You know, like she is very clear about what she's doing. It's very different from what and certainly any other woman, but really any other director was doing at the time. This has a hundred thousand dollar budget or something or slightly over and a crew, a real skeleton crew of like four guys that followed her around. Very, very. Yeah. And there's just a real assurance in all of the aesthetic choices she makes, which seems completely at odds, of course, with the very character she's playing, who is the opposite of someone who's assured and who seems to make decisions entirely because, you know, she found herself in a situation where that was happening. And for whatever reason, coming from her childhood, coming from her past, when something is happening, she just goes along with it. Right. Absolutely. And I'm going to go ahead and say that this is partially a matter of Humor? I don't because I don't think the movie is humorless, but there is something to the trope that, that arises in the movie of her going to a bar and finding a guy to go home with, and that's where she goes for the night. And even with the first guy that she meets in a bar, there's a scene of him waking up before her and abandoning her. But then the next thing we see is her in a mall looking at mannequins and then going to the movies. And again, she falls asleep and someone takes her wallet. But these things, like these minor obstacles, don't stop the movie. 
she does just sort of get past them. Mm-hmm. You know, she just go back to the bar and meet another guy who happens to be robbing the bar as she's there, as she's in the bathroom. And there is this sort of kind of funny moment of this guy looking out for the cops. She kind of barges in because she needs to, like, wash her face. And he's freaking out. And she just does not seem to notice that he's a robber, that the, that the barkeep is behind the bar tied up. That is so beautifully staged, that scene, because we find it out. We also go quite a ways through that scene without realizing that this gray-haired guy that's led her into a bar is not the bartender who's closing up. All the visual information would seem to indicate that that's the case. Right. And he's acting a little bit strange when she goes into the bathroom, but I thought it was because he was figuring out, how do I get with this woman? How do I sexually assault her or something, right? And that's sort of what the movie's setting you up to think. Then you get this strange one shot from above the bar that shows you that there's a man on the ground (laughs) with a handkerchief stuffed in his mouth. You don't know if he has been hurt at that point. I think the idea is basically that he's just been gagged, right? right? And he later reports that the, the robberies happened and it's in the paper. But the way that that's revealed is so enticingly kind of slow. And even at the end of that scene, you're not quite sure exactly what happened. I mean, I guess you assume like this is a bad guy who's doing bad stuff. But when they set off on the road together, you know very little about this character played by Michael Higgins, who she calls Mr. Dennis the entire time. We never really learn his first name, do we? I don't think we do. And the way that he plays that scene, while he's waiting for her in the bathroom, he doesn't really say much. You learn more about his personality later, and he's quite an asshole. But in that moment, there's something so offbeat and and funny to me about the fact that so this is where the movie's going. She's just going to go home with this guy who's robbing a bar. <laughs> like This is what the movie's going to right, become. Right. And then it's going to become her kind of getting wrapped up into sort of a bank robbery with this guy. But just the way that it pivots, it, it's like the way that you kind of think of the typical three-act structure of a movie. This is not really what I expect to be happening in the second act because nothing to this point really sets me up to think that the movie's going to become this. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's almost a spoof, right? A very sad spoof, but it's almost a spoof of Bonnie and Clyde, which came out only, I think, two, three years before this and was on on everybody's mind, right? It was a huge cultural phenomenon when it came out. And Bonnie and Clyde is always talked about as having deglamorized the gangster movie. But I mean, this movie takes the deglamorization so many steps beyond. Bonnie and Clyde next to this is, is so Hollywood. To your earlier point about, you know, her relationship to another kind of independent American film titan, someone like Cassavetes, for all the ways that she's completely tuned in to herself as Wanda, it also isn't sort of the kind of psychological study that someone like Cassavetes was coming up with. She doesn't use close-ups in the same way. She doesn't deploy plot or non-plot in the same way. Like, there's a plot. It's chaotic a bit, and it's unpredictable, but she's not rejecting, like, the classical norms wholesale. I can't figure out what it must have been like to watch this in the 70s. No idea who this director was, like sitting in Venice, watching this movie, no preparation, no history of reputation. You know, if Bonnie and Clyde was only three or four years earlier than this, I really just can't imagine how people made sense of what this movie is trying to yeah, do. Yeah, I'm actually rather surprised that it won the Best Foreign Film Prize at Venice because it, it doesn't, it deserved it, you yeah. know, but it doesn't have the feeling of a prize winning festival movie uh, right. for that time. It just, it just seems like it would have been too alienating and strange. And in fact, a lot of critics, particularly female critics, Pauline Kale and Judith Christ, both gave it negative reviews. Yeah. And for a very specific reason, which may have had to do with the incipient feminism of the time, is that they found the protagonist unlikable or unacceptable. You know, that they right. thought that she was dumb and that she was passive and that they didn't want to watch a whole depressing movie about a woman who couldn't stand up for herself. I mean, you know, it's hard to place her on a spectrum of, of dumb or smart or whatever. I just think that she is 
you know, I think about some of the ways that she sort of reacts, ways that, that seem like they're they're out of like an older comedy somewhere, sort of like, hey, what do you think you're doing? Or like, hey, what's going on with you? There's sort of like a, a streetwise kind mm-hmm. of, but not grotesque sort of attitude. I just think that she, I love her. <laughs> like, frankly, unacceptable or not, I love her the entire time that I'm watching. I love her movie. too. I love her too. I really do. A really funny moment to point to, and it's skipping ahead a wee bit, but the moment when he's trying to steal a car, as he does several times, right? He switches from car to car because they're making this getaway from the bar robbery that they met at. And there's a moment that he's in a parking lot hot wiring a car. And then she points out to him that the keys are just above the visor and he could have just used them. And he, of course, is furious because she figured out something. She she was smarter than him for a minute. And he actually tries to kick her out of the car and right. get rid of her at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Certainly, he thinks that he's just sort of fucked up with some dumb blonde. If she was too dumb to realize that he was robbing the bar as she was sitting in it, then he just assumes that she's just sort of a, you know, just a kind of a quick thing on the road and and he will exchange her the way he exchanges cars at some point another brilliantly funny moment in that scene and one where you love her character so much is where she asks him don't you like sopping up your spaghetti sauce with your bread (laughs) and he doesn't respond because of course he's this anti-social jerk right Right. but she's just trying to make conversation and then there's silence she says well i do (laughs) (laughs) i just love her frankly i think a really big scene in the movie comes after that when they're in in bed together and you know They've had sex and, and she tries to be intimate and he completely rejects it and just asks her to get hamburgers. And he gives these very specific instructions for the kind of he's fussy. He's he seems like a fussy Very weird character, very this fussy Michael guy. Higgins character. He's <laughs> he's definitely not your typical bank robber on the run in a no. movie. He's not some slickster who knows no. how to manipulate, you know. I mean he does manipulate her, but very inexpertly. Very inexpertly, despite, you know, wearing a blazer and very clearly married. Very clearly, and she picks up on that as well. But he has these very specific instructions for the burger. She goes and gets the burger. It doesn't have the right ingredients on it. And so she she has to pick them out. But while she's been gone, he's been looking through her wallet. And there's just this moment of her throwing things in the trash from the burger and seeing her wallet and being like, hey, is this my wallet? And like she's very clearly put together that he has gone through her wallet and thrown it in the trash. But she still does the, the entire song and dance of... Do you see my wallet? Is my is this my wallet? Hey, did you go through my wallet? But like very slowly making the scene seem ridiculous. But there's something about her that's impervious, and at least in this moment, impervious to his harshness, that even as he's getting violent and he slaps her, she just keeps going. Again, I can see why people maybe in that moment would want her to leave or to fight back. Or whatever, but there's something to the fact that she passively and actively stays. I just I just keep dwelling on that because the movie is not drawing a neat psychological roadmap, and yet everything about her is consistent and understandable to me within the context of her. And scenes like this just make me think a lot about how thoroughly Barbara Loden as an actor and director and writer understood who this woman was such that she didn't have to explain who she was. Right. She just made a movie that is so, it's called Wanda because it does embody her, I think, pretty perfectly. But as you said earlier, I don't I don't know about her childhood. I don't know about her past experience. I don't really even know about her husband. I don't know the extent to which he was abusive or not. But you don't know why she got married. You don't know any of that. You don't really see her kids beyond one shot of them in the car. But every moment like this where a man is violent or a scold or whatever and she 
reacts and doesn't and goes with it and doesn't and has a sense of dignity, but also by the fact that she stays maybe undermines that. Just all those moments are so riddled with psychological conflict, but I just, I never lose track of who she is yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It no, adds and, up. and even at that moment that you described that she's scraping the onions off the burger into the hotel trash can. And by the way, it's just so wonderfully lurid and sorted, <laughs> right? The room they're in and the burgers, it's just such 70s grossness. It's like great. everyone smokes and eats at the same time. But there's not an, an abjection there. Like right. it's, you don't feel like it's this kind of, I mean, to grab a name out of midair, like Abel Ferrara style, right. kind of like, let's see how much we can humiliate these characters and how low we can bring them. You know, there's, right. as you say, a kind of dignity to her, even when she's scraping the onions into the hotel trash can. It's a, it's dignity. And, and yet I don't think the movie would call it dignity. It's hard to explain. It's sort of in the moment, and this is, I think, part of the reason I like the movie so much, I just don't really always have a language for her. Maybe part of our inability to pin down exactly what the themes or kind of, you know, moods of certain scenes are comes from the fact that this was a largely unscripted movie. I mean, yeah. the script was written for it, and I think Ilya Kazan actually collaborated on the first draft of the script. But apparently, as they got into the shooting process, the script was more and more thrown away. And there's really mm. a lot of um, improvisation between, especially between her and Michael Higgins, who's the only yeah. other professional actor in the movie. But all of these great faces, these kind of like Fellini-esque oddballs that they encounter on, on along their road trip uh, were non-professional actors. And I think a lot of the times we're just talking about their own stuff and it was kind of incorporated into the screenplay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, this conversation about the relationship between them and how hard it is to read makes me want to throw to my clip that I chose from the movie, which happens almost exactly at the halfway mark. And it's in what I think of as the Tulane blacktop portion of the movie, right? I mean, this movie kept bringing up different references in my head, and one of them was that Monty Hellman film from around this same time. So there's this moment before the bank robbery scheme starts to come together at all, when they really are just kind of drifting town to town, where they pull over in what's the closest thing to a sort of slightly pretty pastoral area, like a field that you see in the whole movie. And uh, he's getting hammered. He's slugging out of a bottle of whiskey or something like that. She's having a snack on the hood of the car. And they have the closest thing to what you might think of as some kind of moment of intimacy. Although, as you'll hear in the clip, it kind of goes south. Um, (laughs) So he wanders over to her. Uh, You hear the natural sound in this scene of the crickets singing. This is a good example, I think, in general, of the kind of the the extreme naturalism of the the dialogue in this movie that does sound kind of improvised. He comes over, places his jacket over her shoulders, which is a very unusually tender gesture for him to make, right? I mean, maybe the only nice thing he ever does. And then they start to have this conversation about her hair, which uh, is, of course, about, you know, him trying to control her look and make her into the kind of doll that he wants. But which also, and this speaks to what you were talking about, her sort of inner core of strength, despite the passivity, which also turns into a conversation about her inability to be ultimately moved or changed by him, you know, her Mm. sort of sureness in who she is. And it's worth noting that her hairstyle is really remarkable in this movie. Um, You know, she's got this gorgeous crown of blonde hair, but she styles it sort of like a a Cupid doll or something. And this very, very high ponytail (laughs) that kind of spills over her face. It's, It's very childlike. 
And it's actually quite flattering, but it's a it's a strange hairstyle for a grown woman in right. 1970 to wear. Um, so this is the moment when he comes over to her on the hood of the car and starts giving her some style advice. When you cover it up. Cover it up? Yeah. Well, cover it up with. Then you get a hat and put it on. A hat? Yeah. Nice hat. Well, because I um, don't have anything to get a hat with. Oh, I don't have anything. Never did have anything, never will have anything. You're stupid. I'm stupid. You don't want anything, you won't have anything. You don't have anything, you're nothing. Man won't be dead. You're not even a citizen of the United States. I'm dead then. So, yeah, because of the naturalistic quality and the somewhat mumbled dialogue, I'm not sure you can hear all of that, but that very last line you hear her say... After he says, you know, if you don't want anything and you don't need anything, you might as well be dead and you're not even a citizen. She says, well, I guess I'm dead. Yeah. And it's it's a great moment because you see there, you know, her deep depression and maybe sort of suicidal side. But again, there's not an objection to it. There's a she she owns the fact that maybe she's dead. Right. She she assumes her position at that moment. And thing that he says about that, you're not a citizen of the United States was just very enigmatic and, and strange. Um, at that moment, it seemed like more explicitly than in many parts of the movie that, that Loden was trying to do something bigger than the story of these two people, you know, and, and maybe to make this into some sort of larger commentary about what it was to be American at that moment in history. Yeah, it's such a, a strange thing that he says, in part because you're a thief. <laughs> so, you know, I remember the first time I watched it, I thought, oh, you know, is that why you're going to rob a bank? Is that why you steal from a bar? Because if you don't have anything, you're nobody. But it's not that you want to work for what you have. It's that you, in a way, want to drift, that you choose to drift from place to place and just steal. Yeah, he's connecting his immorality to some kind of larger value system, right? (laughs) Right. In a way that to her obviously doesn't make any sense, which is why her sort of, I guess I'm dead then, is in a way far from the the depressing response that it could have been. It sort of feels like she's the person who's got a little bit of moral integrity. Like, I am am who I am. And if I don't want anything, I don't want anything. Right, because it's, it's, it's funny that he could be saying, you know, well, maybe you're not worth anything in the sense that maybe you don't know how to do anything. Maybe you couldn't have a job, but you could at least steal. You could at least, like, you know, rob a bank like me. And and, and for her, it's just like that's not even really, you know, she goes along with this plan because she's with this guy. But she wasn't really thinking about robbing a bank. She wasn't really thinking about self-reliance in, in the sense of crime in that way but it's it's just fascinating that that that's how he frames what he does as the american a, dream right it's like it doesn't matter whether or not you work for it just it's money you just need money or you're nobody you know wear a blazer like me so you can drape it around the the shoulders of a girl that you don't even like uh, you know it's it's funny right i mean and that's also seen in the moment when he says get a nice hat which is right. one of those moments that's so bleak but so funny and her just pointing out what the hell am i gonna get a hat with right. i don't I, have the money for a can of coke and this is just something that i think throughout the movie her intonation as she says these things like what am i gonna do it's singular i, I just i can't think of anyone in a movie 
who sounds that way with that kind of line, who would read a line in in that way, which very easily could slip into like melodrama or, or something bigger or stranger than what it is, that she finds naturalism, even though it's improvised film, like what on the page would read, I think, any number of other ways, that she finds that sort of middle of the road language and sound for it as like throughout the movie you can hear other cars you can hear traffic you can hear the crickets as you point out there's this like sound of transients all around them and no music right there's no no extra diegetic music at all there's a great musical moment at the end but the musicians are right there in the room right and i think about this a lot as i as i watch just that the even when they're in that motel room, even when they're driving later, you can always hear the noise of cars. To your point about this being contemporary to several road movies and several kind of drifter fantasies, I associate this movie with the sound of everyone else doing that and her making her way but being kind of static in many ways. But I can just hear the cars when I think about this movie. I can hear other people driving by. And, you know, listening to that moment where he tries to style her hair or get a hat and turn her into the whatever kind of woman he wants her to be just can't help but make me think of one of my other favorite scenes in this movie, which is where he takes her to a shopping mall. And while he is switching cars, he's essentially stealing a different car in the parking lot and moving their stuff from one car to the next. He sends her in with some stolen money to uh, to restyle herself, to buy some new clothes in the mall. And you you see her coming out with this kind of childlike smile of pride, wearing these bright yellow pants and this kind of white lace top. She styles herself amazingly through this movie, too. Like, she has thought through so carefully what that character looks like and what she would wear in different Mm. scenarios. And so she comes out with this kind of pride at her new Barbie-like costume that she's bought in the mall. And in this heartbreaking moment, he says, I thought I told you to get a dress. And she says, I did get a dress. It's in this bag. And he forces her to put the dress on in the car. And there's this really sad shot where he throws the yellow pants out the window and you see them just lying on the highway. And he says, no slacks, you know, and which to me was just a moment of, wow, in 1970, you know, a year that I was alive, there there really was a kind of judgment of women who would wear pants. You know, that's the degree of the kind of cage that she's in. And you really see that in her face, the beautiful shot of her face after he throws the the pants out the window. She really wanted those pants. No, you're so right. I had completely forgotten about that moment, but it it also just resonates in the context of these brief moments in the movie where, you know, early on it's when she's walking through a kind of mall. Later on, she's walking down the street and she's looking at mannequins and she's seeing these well-styled mannequins. And the first time I watched it, I thought, oh, well, this is maybe trying to communicate something aspirational. And I think this relates to the dress. I think that she sees these items of clothing and and these nice items of clothing and just feels that they're incommensurate with her life. I initially thought it was, you know, a scene of wanting, wanting money, wanting means, wanting to be able to buy these things because that's so often what that kind of moment communicates. But I watched it again and I don't think of those moments as longing, really. I think of them as just sort of like, that's just a whole other life. Mm, yeah. And, and, and this dress, I think, is a part of that. Like the slacks were her. Mm-hmm. And the dress is that thing that is just not commensurate with the way that she understands herself or what she wants or what she needs. And I think this goes with her being a drifter. It, it, it's not like she wants to be rich. I don't think of her as someone who, I mean, everyone could use money, but this this movie really never becomes a story of her Wanting riches. This is not like general gentlemen prefer blondes. I think of like Marilyn Monroe seeing dollar signs oh, in the guy's no. eyes. I mean, she says right on the car hood, I don't want anything. Right. You know? I don't want anything. She I'm, has I that kind I'm of dead. existential emptiness. Like I'm dead and that's fine. And the way that I read those scenes of her looking at the store windows was not longing for the commodities 
but almost identifying with the mannequins, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, she's this beautiful woman. She has a, you know, classically sculptural face. She's looking at these mannequins, and I feel like there's almost this sense of, like, that's me. I, I can be nothing but this, you know, this, yeah, this plastic thing. It really actually made me think of there's some similar scenes in Agnès Varda's film, Cléo de Saint-Cassette, right? Yeah. Cléo from 5 to 7, moments of a beautiful blonde woman walking by glass windows and looking at mannequins. And what you think is not about... I want these clothes. It's sort of like I identify with the emptiness of these plastic dolls. It's so true. It's so true. But I feel like we should move them out of the, the two-lane blacktop portion of their journey together and into the dog day afternoon moment when they attempt this incredibly bungled would-be bank robbery that that's planned by the, the Mr. Dennis character. Can you tell us how that all gets set up and, and what happens? So I think the, the plan, which is never quite laid out for us, but they certainly communicate it between themselves, is that she is going to pretend to be pregnant. Um, They're going to hold someone up, steal their car so that she has a getaway car. And while he is robbing the bank, she's going to be coming around with the car and he's going to be able to run out and jump into the car. They're going to go away together. They also, of course, do this strange act of of terrorism, right? Like domestic (laughs) terrorism, where they plant a fake bomb. We later learned that it wasn't real, but they essentially kidnap the president of this bank or some sort of high-up employee at the bank to get him to go open the vault for them. And they do that by breaking into his house, putting a briefcase that supposedly has a live bomb in it on the lap of his daughter, who's tied up with his wife and other daughter on the couch. I mean, it's a really horrifying act of, of violence, right? It's terrible. And, but he uh, has that fake bomb ready. Do you think, so this is something he's done before, do you think? I don't know. Way? He's so inept. I mean, he's, he's so inept. He, he doesn't seem to know what he's doing at all. But it's, it's it's a plan that works well enough to get them in the car with the bank president, you totally. know, going to the bank because he tells them you have an hour and 15 minutes, a weirdly specific span of time before this goes off. And so we've got to go to the bank and get into the vault by then. And, and I think you sense from the bank president that he is not totally sold. And, you know, another of those moments, those tiny heartbreaking moments that Loden just plays so perfectly is that as they're walking out of the bank president's house, having, you know, set up this fake bomb, there's a moment that he hands her the keys to the car that's going to become the getaway car, right? He sends her on her way because she's supposed to drive the getaway car to the bank. And he briefly compliments her for the very first time. He says, what, is he, what does he say? You did good. You're, You're really, really something. something. And she gets this smile. Maybe the first time you've seen her just unaffectedly smile in the whole movie. Right. And in a beautiful detail, the entire way that she's driving the getaway car after them, and it's kind of a long shot, so it's not stressed, but she continues to smile, you know, and you just see how impoverished her emotional life is that, you know, this guy who's been abusing her and manipulating her for days in this bizarre, you know, Bonnie and Clyde scenario just gives her one compliment and, you know, she's she's all in. Absolutely. And it's, man, you want better. (laughs) You want want better for her, but but also... I too, sort of in that moment, I'm so moved for her. And, and but then there's also, so, you know, you see her running around to get on the other side of, to get into the getaway car, and you see the the fake pregnant belly sort of flopping. So there's also just a. I, I think that Barbara Loden, it's not comedy, but I do think that she has a keen sense of just the comic irony of these kinds of moments that even in this moment, it's a little bit silly, but I think that supports what you're saying about the emotional impoverishment, right? That this is such a silly situation and it's such a bad situation. You don't need to know the ending of the movie to just know that a bank robbery is probably not going to go well. And you want, and you want it to be better than this, but you're also so good for her. Right. But by the time the bank robbery happens, 
I think what's really smart that Barbara Loden does is she never really, in the moment of the bank robbery, she never really lets it seem like it's going to work. Right, right. And there's no Ocean's Eleven style moment where they lay out like, here's where we're going to break in, right? right? And here's a map of the vault or something like that. There is a moment when he's trying to make her memorize the steps to the bank robbery, that beautiful scene where she resists very strongly, right? right? I mean, she has this kind of moral resistance and she doesn't say that it's moral, but she essentially says over and over, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, right? Whether it's fear or or an objection to the fact that they're committing a crime is not exactly clear, but he has to really strong arm her into it with this awful sort of faux apartment empowerment discourse of like you can do it you can do it right. you, can, you can help me do this criminal act that you get nothing out of because he, and he won't say it because he he needs her he's not he's not going to say that he needs her but he needs her he needs her to drive that getaway car he needs her to be all in and he needs her to pull it off and i think which means that the compliment is perfectly timed it right? is perfectly timed and it's you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this ever since just you brought it up. And maybe the question of whether or not he's being genuine almost doesn't matter. But is he being genuine? Well, I mean, it's like when he puts the coat around her shoulders, right? It does yeah. seem to be an unmotivated. There's more of a motivation for a compliment at that moment because he's trying totally. to keep her in. But at the so same you're time, really something is. But at the same time, he I, I don't see this character. Obviously, he's not a good guy. Right? right. But he is also not your typical movie bad guy whose every right. utterance is designed to you know bring about the, the outcome that he desires. He is a shambling fool, you know, who's yeah. trying to bring about this this vague outcome of somehow getting riches that he doesn't seem to either understand why he wants it or how he's going to get it. You know, so or what he's going to do with it. So the idea that somewhere in that welter of confusion that is Mr. Dennis's mind, there might be a moment when he's legitimately awed, you know, by this this young woman who he's brought along with him, who was actually able to to help him in his plan. Right. Yeah, maybe there is something legit there. Yeah. Well, it's too bad he's so bad at robbing <laughs> banks. So yeah, the bank robbery scene happens very quickly. It's it not does. dog day afternoon in the sense that it's not some drawn out scenario in which we learn exactly how it's all strategically being carried out. He gets as far as the the vault being opened, right? He gets right. The, the the bank director to start opening the vault, but the cops have been called. I forget how. Was it one of the tellers that called I th- them? I think it is one of the tellers. And this is all being intercut with her driving to the bank. And you can already sort of tell that the, the timing is such that she's a little bit late. I mean, maybe her being late is sort of what saves her in the end because it, he messes this up early enough that by the time she gets there, it's already over. Right. It's and over he's been him. shot. He's been shot. You don't see him get shot, right? You hear a shot ring right. out and think that it might have been him that shot the cops that are that are coming into the bank. But we soon learn as we see him being carried out that he's the one who didn't survive the bank robbery. And by a real stroke of luck, she arrives there just late enough to seem like she's a gawker on the sidelines rather right. than somebody who came to pick him up. And really, I mean, I think it's one of the for me, one of the most striking shots in the movie, it's the image that Criterion uses at the cover of their disc, and it's actually the one that I had on my phone that made me choose this movie. But her looking on and gawking with the rest of the crowd, of course you know it's her because you're watching a movie about her, but there's something going on in her face that's not going on in everyone else's face. There's like a real loss there. It's not that she loves the guy, but this is what she was doing. This is mm. her guy yeah. at that moment. Yeah, yeah. This is her direction in that moment. She even starts, there's the tiniest gesture where he starts to signal to the cop that's holding people back as if to say like, wait, I know that yeah, guy, right, right? right? And then I guess she thinks better of it. You don't know quite why that gesture doesn't land, but it's a beautiful little moment of her almost trying to differentiate herself from the crowd. I'm not just a gawker. I know him, right? Right. But what good would that do her? What good would that do her? Absolutely. We're focusing on her as he's getting killed and, and getting carried away and I just, man, I think in that moment, man, I really wish that this had worked out. 
because now there's the question of now what's she going to do? And so now we should get into the denouement of the of the movie, which I thought was going to maybe end right there. I could even Absolutely. have seen I could have seen it ending with her, you know, in the crowd of onlookers at the bank robbery. It's a good last shot. Yeah, there's been a couple shots that it would be a good last shot. Um, but yeah, because it's such a drifting movie, and you sort of know that there's not going to be a neat bow at the end where we find out what happens to her. Uh, the next few things that happen to her are are interesting in their very uh, indeterminacy. So let, let's talk about those. So she goes, I mean, I'm just realizing now, way too late, that this is a, a trend in the movie, a trope in the movie. But she goes back to like a restaurant or a bar and she sits down and she meets a guy and he's talking at her and she's not really talking back. She's very clearly sort of recalibrating and figuring out what she's going to do. She gets in a car with this guy. It's a very striking red car. And they drive to an isolated place. And he tries to have sex with her, tries to assault her. And she escapes. And she runs into the woods. And she's there, I guess, she for the rest of the day until it's dark. She's sort of wandering again. Yeah, she's sobbing in the woods, she's which sobbing. is heartbreaking. I right. thought that movie might end there, too. Remember the shot of the trees Absolutely. waving overhead? Absolutely. Um, but then she lands at a sort of another tavern. Yeah, the place she ends up is almost like a roadhouse, old school. You know, it's a, it's a very sort of down and out, sawdust on the floor type place where there's a sort of bluegrass band sawing away and a lot of working class people. You can easily see this being in the, you know, the kind of Allegheny Mountains right. in Pennsylvania, which is near where they filmed a lot of the movie. And uh, it's, there's not a lot of audible dialogue in this scene, but the general idea of it is that she's sort of been caught up in this new crowd of people, you know, a bunch right. of partiers at, at this roadhouse who take pity on her, buy her a drink, give her cigarettes, give her a hot dog. And the last thing you see after this strangely joyful, actually, kind of pan of the musicians, you know, and, and everybody getting really into the music, it's actually a place where there's some community, you know, and some sort of j- drunken joy happening of some sort. But she's very alienated from all that and is right. just sitting there having her hot dog. And this is the the ending I was talking about that I found so moving. I mean, the freeze frame is kind of a classic 70s ending, you know, yeah, sure. but, uh, but the freeze frame works so perfectly for this film because it's extremely indeterminate what will happen to her next, right? What would Wanda 2 possibly be? And uh, especially for that time, and I feel like now we're in this era of indeterminate movie endings. Every indie seems like it has to end with, you know, somebody staring out a window and you have no idea if they're about to be killed or not. Um, But in this movie, it suits so perfectly the, the whole drifty world that she's moved through the whole time. We just get this sense that though she may have been changed by the experience that she just had, what is going to continue to happen to her will probably be more of the same. And, right. you know, initially she shot a separate, actually filmed a whole separate ending to this movie where the police come and apprehend her at the roadhouse and then decided later in her words that it was too corny. I guess it would be also too punishing. You know, she right. didn't say that, but it would also be the ending of the movie that says, well, everybody gets their due and, you know, this woman did bad things and now she's been apprehended. I think that would have been a completely inappropriate ending for this kind of film. It needs to be open-ended. I agree. And, and yeah, it's too genre in a way. It it, it makes the movie more about the crime. bank robbery and yeah. the crime than really it is. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think the ending is quite a whopper <laughs> because where is she going to go? I mean, I, I think what's really... Fortunate to me about the negative critiques of the movie from when it came out was just that there's, to me, such a clear sense of this is a woman who has rejected the, uh, the kind of the social role of motherhood, has left the home, has left the kids with her husband, with the father, and sort of has non-options. That's really all that she has. And in the end of the movie, it's just like, yeah, what is she going to do? Like, what kind of life is there for someone like Wanda whose life, it seems, was all going in the direction of just being someone's wife. 
what is she going to do and how does she find a way to reinvent or become someone after that? And you just realize that like these situations that she lands herself in with men, they're not allowing her to become anyone. She doesn't get to become anyone except with bank robber guy. She became someone. And I think in the moment of pulling it off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what's so moving about about him complimenting her. Well, Loden talks about that, too. And we'll talk about some interviews with her that she did about the film after. But she talks about the connection between the two of them, between Mr. Dennis and Wanda. This is perhaps related to the newspaper article that inspired the film about the woman thanking a judge for sending her to jail, right? That there are people who would rather be told what to do, even in a mean way, right, than just drift through life having to define themselves and not knowing how or not having the resources and and the space to do that. So as dysfunctional as the relationship between them is, he is someone who needs her. You know, he's someone who needs her and who has specific tasks for her to carry out. And there's a part of her that's grateful for that. Yeah. Let's talk about the extras a little bit, because one of the wonderful things about the new Criterion channel, which I'm just starting to explore for the first time, is that they include extras. And so if you bought the Criterion DVD or Blu-ray, you would have all these things, but they're actually putting them on the channel as well. And in the case of Wanda, at least, they are extremely worthwhile extras. And I know the clip that you wanted to play was from one of those extras. You want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. There's a documentary from 1980 from when she died called I'm Wanda that is about her a bit later than this movie and she's at a point where she hasn't made another film she has other projects that she's been thinking a lot about one of them is an adaptation of The Awakening but really that would have been incredible right that would have been incredible The Awakening being this turn of the century kind of landmark feminist novel it just would have been amazing to see what she did with the period piece oh absolutely I mean mean, to your point about the transcendence of this ending I mean I think she would have rocked the ending of The Awakening, just drifting out out to sea. So this documentary, she's at the point in her life where she's uh, an acting teacher, and she doesn't say this within the documentary, but through a voiceover, we learn that she is months away from dying as this is being filmed. And there's very much the sense of her wanting to get a kind of record of her life out uh, in a way that probably would have happened some other way if she'd had a, a longer directorial or actor career. But... Uh, there's a there are a number of great moments in this documentary of just sitting and, and her monologuing in her office. But the the clip that I, I wanted to share with us all is is a moment of her talking about her own mother, because I, I think what she does is she sort of lays out the story of her life and how she sort of landed in New York. She was working at the Copacabana. She was you know, she did the play. She did a number of things. She met Elia, et cetera. It was the blonde bombshell the period. Blonde bombshell right. period. Exactly. But she talks about her childhood and her own distance from her mother, who for, for a substantial part of her life didn't raise her. And now she didn't really get close again to her mother until her mother was on her deathbed. Uh, and, and just the clip that I want to share is just of her talking about her relationship to her mother at that point in her mother's life. There's something really striking that she says about continuity and about the ways that she newly understands her mother's life and that's her own life, her own drifting before she came to New York and while she was in New York and the ways that part of the work of making films and of being an actor, um, because we have to remember her, her Tony was for playing Marilyn Monroe, a a girl raised in poverty with a shitty relationship with her mother. But, but Loden talks about the ways that her work is in line with sort of telling her mother's story and telling her story, which I think is just so crucial to understanding Wanda. I think even without knowing this, you sense this from Wanda, you sense how personal it is. But there's something to the way that she's telling generations of women like her, the story of generations of women like her, I think is really profound and really sad. She's, she's very emotional in this moment. And I feel this is one thing I was talking about before, about continuity, that life goes on and that people's lives are not in vain, 
because um, I think through what I do, I might be able to help to express some of the things that my mother wasn't able to express in her lifetime and, and some of the things that she went through. And um, so I think that uh, I, I can help um, to, through my own being, to, um, to continue my, um, my mother's, ex I don't consciously do that, but it's just a natural thing that happens that um, I really understand her life, I mean, as much as I can, and uh, it's part of me. And, and everything is part of me. It's what I'm trying to, I hope, I will be able here and there to express in my work. Not everything at once, but a little bit, a little aspect of it here, a little aspect of it there. And, and, and this is why I want to do what I do. Um, Oh man, that 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 scene is really hard to watch. I mean, I highly recommend that people watch I Am Wanda after watching the movie Wanda. It's only an hour. It's only an hour long, and it is essentially, with a couple of exceptions, you know, Ely Kazan talks to the camera a little bit, and you see her at dinner with Ely Kazan and their sons. But basically, you're right, it is her sitting in her office talking about what her work has meant to her. And it really just makes you so, so heartbroken that this artist died at only 48 and only had the chance to make one feature film. I mean, it's just so obvious what a profound talent she was and how much more she still had to bring. Right. I mean, even, you know, elsewhere in this documentary, you see moments of her working with acting students and just just glimpses of how she talks to these actors about how to perform intimacy in a scene. Man, it's like, I mean, it's, first of all, a, a great glimpse into her as a director and, and, and what she's trying to get these people to evoke relative to each other and the patience that she wants them to have with each other and the attention that she wants them to pay to each other for something that could otherwise be a very trite scene that they're performing. She's profoundly talented and perceptive. And the idea that in this moment, as we're watching, that she, I think she knows that her days are, are numbered. Wanda was made 10 or so years before this documentary. That's a lot of movies that could have been made. And and even before Wanda, I mean, part of the reason she did Wanda was because she wasn't getting the roles that she wanted. And and so that's a lot of that's a lot of time that she could have been doing more work. And it's very complicated. And I think I think also just it's worth seeing this documentary to understand a little bit more. You'll have to get some other context, but a little bit more of her relationship with Elia um, Kazan and and her relationship to Hollywood, et cetera. And, you know, there are other clips as well. There's a Dick Cavett interview that's surreal to me. <laughs> Very strange interview. Fascinating to watch both because of what Barbara Loden has to say and because of just what a strange atmosphere it was to be on the Dick Cavett show with Howard Cosell and right. Jimmy Breslin sitting next to you, giving their right. two cents. Talking about Wanda and knowing that Wanda would sort of disappear, it just, just the whole thing raises so many questions about about maybe what the expectations for the movie were going to be or or what but it's a very it's a very interesting interview and it's also a good look at her uh contemporary to Wanda and seeing her separate from the movie and just seeing how she folds herself into the movie I think by seeing her as a person 
All right, so our film this week was the wonderful Wanda. It's streaming on the Criterion channel. I mean, it alone is a reason to subscribe to that channel, but it looks like there's a lot of other good reasons. I really think if there's if you're a movie person and you're willing to spend, what is it, $10 a month to have I'm access sure. to hundreds, I'm not sure if it's a 1,000, but maybe close, great movies, Criterion channel is, is worth subscribing to. We're going to talk again in two weeks. And uh, we have decided during the course of our recording today that we we feel like we need to go down some sort of paranoid '70s rabbit hole. It's this <laughs> is it. we're we're recording on the day that the Mueller report is being presented to Congress, and it just feels like we're we're in that zone. Like somebody needs to run from a shady CIA agent somewhere. <laughs> so our next topic of discussion in two weeks is going to be Sidney Pollack's Three Days of the Condor from 1975, which is a Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway starring. Paranoid thriller, which you have not seen, Cam, correct? Not yet. No, it's like one of the few of those paranoid thrillers from that era that I haven't seen. I saw it so long ago that all I remember from it is that there's a very hot scene involving Faye Dunaway, Robert Redford, and bondage. So that lies in your future. I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) So, Three Days of the Condor, it's streaming on Amazon Prime, it's on iTunes, and you can also find it on Vudu. So, it's out there to be seen. Uh, Watch it if you care to and come back and hear us talk about it in two weeks. So Flashback will be a bi-weekly series that comes out every other Sunday morning, but it will soon be available for Slate Plus members only. So sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash flashback. And if you're already a Slate Plus member, thank you. You can subscribe to our feed at slate.com slash flashback. Our producer is Chow Tu. We will see you in two weeks for another episode of Flashback. Flashback.